Paul's letter to the Colossians, the first chapter, verses 1 to 23. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother. To the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossus, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that springs up from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing amongst you since the day you heard it and understood, it, understood God's grace in all its truth. You learnt it from Ephorus, our dear fellow Christ servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you, and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm not moved from the hope held out in the gospel this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant Amen Our Father, we, we need your help in everything. As I speak, as we all listen, 
We need your help, Father, to open our eyes and our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might learn more of the Lord Jesus and what it means to be his people. For we pray that you would show him to us this evening in a deeper, fuller way. Draw us to him for his glory. Amen. Amen. If something is worth doing, then it's worth doing properly. Lord Fisher was in charge of the Royal Navy in the early part of the 20th century, and his unofficial motto was that a thing should be done totus porcus, that is, the whole hog. And apparently he was a bit of a brute, but he shook things up in the Navy and got a good job done, because things had to be done totus porcus, the whole hog. And in many ways, that's a healthy outlook, isn't it? Where possible, we want to get the most out of a thing. We want to enjoy it to the fullest possible extent. We don't want to miss out or hang back. That's a healthy outlook. And spiritually, that was the outlook of the Christians in Colossae. They hadn't been Christians for very long. This little church was planted in the period that's covered in the book of Acts. So they hadn't been Christians very long, but they were not sitting back. If Christianity was true, and they were persuaded that it was, then they wanted to pursue it fully. They wanted as much of God as they could get, and as much of his power in their lives as they could get. They were wholehearted. They were hungry. Let me try to show you that in the letter. It's always hard reading these letters. It's like having one half of a conversation, one side of it, and so you have to try to infer from, uh, um, imply, um, sorry, see what Paul says and kind of read backwards and see the sorts of concerns among them that he was addressing. And there's a word that keeps on cropping up in the letter. Fullness. Time and again, Paul talks about fullness, and it seems that for the Colossians, that was a big issue. And so Paul is teaching them about fullness, trying to show them what that really means and where it comes from. So, first of all, chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Chapter 1, verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. 125. I have become its servant by the commission that God um, gave to me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Um, Chapter 2, verse 2. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. Chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And then in the next verse, verse 10. And you have been given fullness in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 12. Lastly. As Paul concludes the letter, the theme is still there. He's talking about Epaphras, a man we'll meet again in a moment. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. The Colossians wanted fullness. That's what Paul talks to them about. They wanted fullness. And we have to say right at the beginning, quite right too. Quite right too. 
as we read this letter over the next few weeks, it will challenge many of us who are more laid back in our faith, more, for want of a more polite word, half-hearted. How many of us, I mean, honestly, how many of us could genuinely say that we are striving, seeking, hungering for spiritual fullness? How much... How many of us could actually say that we want as much of God as we can get in our lives? Now, mostly that's not the way I feel, um, because I haven't got the energy. I haven't got the time. Um, I'm, you know, I'm fairly satisfied with my own spiritual life. I'm aware of many imperfections and frustrations, but that doesn't mean I'm going to do anything about them, because I haven't got the time. I haven't got the energy. My experience of knowing God isn't perfect. But frankly, it'll do. And I expect that in our honest moments, many of us would say the same things. The Colossians, we'll see, put us to shame with their enthusiasm, their hunger. Or a better way of looking at it, rather than them putting us to shame, they will inspire us. Let's hope. But, as well as that note in the letter, there is also a note of warning in particular about how we go about pursuing fullness and where we look for that. Because Paul, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 10, he's saying, you have been given fullness in Christ. You have been given fullness in Christ. It seems, as we read between the lines again in the letter, that there were certain teachers in Colossae who were offering a, a false vision of more in the Christian life. They were offering the Colossians a a way to grow and to progress, a a deeper experience that Paul says actually is not authentic. And so he warns them in this letter. It's what we'll see. It comes particularly in chapter 2. These new teachers, they seem to have been pushing new experiences of God or a, a rigorous regime of spiritual uh, rules, lots of rules, as if these guys were saying, you want fullness, you want to be a really keen Christian? Then listen to me, this is what you need. We can't explore it all now, but just so we see this note in the letter, it starts most strongly, most explicitly in chapter 2, verse 8. Please have a look at that. This note of warning. It's right that we want fullness, but we must be careful in how we understand and how we pursue that. So Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. You see that? That's a, that's a fire alarm right there. He's saying, it's, it's legitimate, it's good to pursue fullness, it's good that you want that, but be careful be careful. There are offers of spiritual fullness, and it's really in chapter 2 that he explains and develops that. There are offers of spiritual fullness that may look attractive and impressive, but actually, they're not founded in Christ, they're not real, and they're harmful in the end. And that's still the case today. We'll see that in the weeks to come. Various books and conferences and churches will present a version of Christian progress, a version of what it means to live a a full-orbed Christian life, to flourish, that actually isn't based on Christ and isn't real or true or good. 
And so, what Paul is calling them and us to in this letter is, if I can put it like that, a discriminating enthusiasm, a warm head, eager to have as much of God as we can, but a wise head as we go about that. We need to know what is true progress in the Christian life and what is merely human hype. And as I've indicated, what we'll see again and again and again in the letter, the keynote is that spiritual fullness is found in Jesus. He is the source of all true Christian experience. If you want to get on in the Christian life, if you want more of God, then go deeper into Jesus. Don't move on from him. Don't move on from the simple gospel about what he's done. Don't look elsewhere. Look to Jesus. A deepening Christian is a person with a deepening relationship with an understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message of this letter. Stick with Jesus. Go deeper into Jesus because he is all you need. That's the message of the, of the letter in a nutshell. But now, let's have a look at the passage that David read and um, for ease of digestion, I've tried to break it up into three. So first, verses one to eight. What I think is going on is this. Paul reassures the Colossians by giving thanks for their ordinary beginnings. Paul reassures the Colossians by giving thanks for their ordinary beginnings. The start of the letter is very ordinary. He says, hello, it's like an email, from, to. He's even got um, Timothy cc'd in. It's very friendly. It's very warm. Paul says he's been praying for them, verse 3. That's always nice to know, isn't it, when somebody says that? I've been praying for you. He says he's been giving thanks for them. He's saying that he's heard about what's been going on at Colossae and he's been grateful to God for it. What has he heard? Well, have a look. Three things. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Paul thanks God for their faith. The Colossians trust Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They believe that he's the Son of God. They trust him. They understand now that being right with God doesn't depend on what they do, but on what he has done for them. They rely on him. They have faith. And they have love. Love for all the saints, it says, which just means for God's people. Paul's heard about the congregation there and how people are supporting one another and opening their homes to one another and there's a real love among the people there. And then the third thing, the hope, that's the ground of the other two things. They have a hope stored up for them in heaven. And it says... Christians have that view of the future that we put our trust in Jesus as we see that we need a rescuer for that future day and we trust him for that. And as we see that while Christians around us now, they're a mixed bunch, actually we'll be with them forever when our hope finally materialises and so I will love them now as brothers and sisters as they will be one day. Hope, faith and love. Paul sees these marks, or rather he has heard about them in the Colossians, and so he gives thanks to God. He sees these things, and he knows that God has been at work amongst them. But how had all this happened? What had 
been going on at Colossae? How had God stirred up this hope, faith and love? Well, he explains from verse 5 there, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in, in heaven that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the, pardon me, the gospel that has come to you all over the world. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. It's simple. It's very ordinary. Apart from it's extraordinary. They had become Christians, genuine Christians, by hearing the genuine gospel. Epaphras, it seems, was a local guy and he'd been converted listening to Paul somewhere else and then he'd gone home and he'd taken the message with him. And as he spoke in Colossae to his friends, neighbours, maybe his family, they believed as well. And that's how the church was planted. And what Paul is doing here, particularly if you look at verses 7, 8 and 9, is he's putting a big red thumbs up, a tick, next to what Epaphras has done, next to the man and the message that he gave them. He is endorsing Epaphras. You know the game um, Chinese Whispers? I don't know why it's called that, but we know the game where a message gets passed around the circle and it's awfully funny because it tends to get a bit mangled. Well, Epaphras had not been playing Chinese Whispers. He had passed on the gospel message from the apostles faithfully, Paul says that the gospel they had heard is the same gospel that he preached, that everywhere is being preached and that everywhere in the world is bearing fruit. It's the real McCoy. That's the gist of verses 1 to 8. These Colossians had become real Christians through hearing the real gospel. Now, at one level, this is just a nice warm way to begin a letter. Paul's making it clear that he knows about their situation, he cares about it, he approves of what's going on there. He's happy about it. But think about the verses in the light of the problems, the false teaching that we began to think about earlier on. If new teachers were starting to say that there was more to the Christian life than, you know, special experiences, you need to go deeper to find fullness, then suddenly we start to see a bit more of an edge to what Paul is saying here. He is very deliberately expressing a warm and a high approval for their initial Very ordinary spiritual experience. So hearing the gospel from Epaphras, it's very ordinary. There's no lightning bolts or any apparitions of God. Very simply, he had been persuaded about the truth about Jesus and he went home and he persuaded others. It wasn't even his own insight. He was just passing it on from the apostles. There are two things we learn about Epaphras in this letter. That he spoke accurately, he spoke the gospel accurately, and he prayed faithfully. That's what you see in chapter 4. Only two things. He spoke accurately, and he prayed faithfully. How boring is that? This guy was no spiritual innovator. He just spoke accurately and prayed faithfully. And yet in his hometown, he unleashed the power of God and changed the whole place. What sort of person do you think will help you spiritually? What sort of leaders? What sort of friends? God's power is subtle. That's the message here. It flows through ordinary means, through those who speak accurately and pray faithfully. 
Or if you want to have an impact yourself with your friends who are not yet Christians, in your family, with your children, in your small group, what are you going to do? Don't worry about being impressive. Speak accurately and pray faithfully. It wasn't fancy from Epaphras, but Paul endorses that kind of work. And Paul's also endorsing that kind of outcome. It wasn't fancy among the, these um, people in Colossae. It wasn't kind of, in one sense, it wasn't incredible things happening there. It was faith, hope and love. They put their trust in Jesus instead of themselves. They stopped trusting in their own ability to get right with God and relied on him. It's very ordinary in one sense. It doesn't look like much. It's not very eye-catching. They were loving one another, again, slightly mundane, opening their homes, supporting one another, sharing with those in need. They were looking to heaven instead of living for now. It's not flashy. It's very ordinary. And yet it's not, is it? It takes a miracle of God. They may not be eye-catching, but those things are wonderful to see. Wonderful to see in your own life. Wonderful to see in a church. And actually, quite rare. So for some of us, these words will be challenging. If these simple marks are not there in our life, if we're not excited about heaven, not loving other Christians, not trusting Jesus, then, well these people are an example to follow. But for many more of us, I think this is just a big encouragement. The marks of spiritual reality are not eye-catching, headline-grabbing. They are hope, faith, and love. And many of us here, as we look around in our own lives, in the lives of our friends, in the lives of this church, we see that those marks are there. And we know that God has genuinely been at work. So that's what, Paul, uh, that's what Paul is doing in the context. He is reassuring the Colossians by giving thanks for their very ordinary beginnings. Second thing, verses 9 to 14, verses 9 to 14, Paul is guiding their spiritual ambitions by praying for their fullness. Paul guides their spiritual ambitions by praying for their fullness. Um, See what he says there. Just read those verses again, please, from verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. If the first bit of the passage, 1 to 8, if that's emphasising that he doesn't want them to feel wrongly insecure in the face of these new teachers who are offering more and deeper, he doesn't want them to feel insecure about the spiritual experience that they have, genuine Christians having heard the genuine gospel. So he doesn't want them to feel insecure. That's the first bit. The second bit is he doesn't want them to feel complacent. Because it would be easy for them to read one to eight and think, well, well, we're doing rather well. The apostles are very pleased with us. We, we don't need any of this new stuff about fullness. We don't need that. We're fine as we are. That's not what Paul's saying. And so he says, 
No, no, I'm praying for you that you will take forward steps, that you will make progress. I want you to grow. I want you to flourish. And if you look at what he prays for them, if you look at the details, you can see that his ambitions for them are sky high. There's no complacency here. He says that I want God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want you to please God in every way. I want you to be strengthened with all God's power. It's not that he's lowering the bar. It's not that he has a lower standard than these other teachers who are saying that there should be more. He's just redefining these things. So, first, what what would you expect it to look like if a person was filled with the knowledge of God's will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Just answer that in your own mind for a second. What would you think that would look like if that prayer was answered and a person was filled with the knowledge of God's will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Well, I'm thinking that some of the folks here doing theology PhDs would enjoy that. That would um, mean their insights would come a bit faster. We'd expect, I don't know, some special anointing, maybe personal communications from God where he speaks to you, where he tells you what to do all the time. It would mean having special insights that other people don't have, special wisdom. But if you look at what Paul actually says this means filled with the knowledge of God's will through all spiritual wisdom so that you will live a life pleasing to the Lord. He's talking about knowing God, knowing how to please God and living it out. It sounds very grand. It is very grand. But it's not eye-catching. These new teachers were show-offs. Paul is saying that the real work of God is substantial, is deep, goes through real life as a person is godly. That's what I'm praying for you. Go look at verse 11. What would it look like if a person was strengthened with all God's glorious power? I mean, again, that just sets the imagination running. Presumably such a person would sail triumphantly through all of life's trials, strengthened with all the power of God. They would sail through temptation. The person would pray and speak like a spiritual titan. But no, Paul says, so that you might have endurance and patience and thankfulness. That is what it looks like when when the power of God, all the power of God, is at work in a person's life. It means they stay Christian. And some of you who are older, who have been a Christian for a long time in this room, will know the truth of that. That it's a miracle, simply when a person can stay Christian through the course of their life and stay thankful and warm. That is what these verses say to us. They affirm our desire for growth, but they also shape and guide that desire, showing us that shouldn't desire necessarily what is most eye-catching, but the real work of God in a person's life. Holiness, obedience, thankfulness, endurance. So again, as we look at this prayer, there's a challenge here for us, asking, I guess, whether we pray like this for ourselves, for 
your wife or your husband if you're married, if your children, if you have them, for those you're responsible for, for others in the congregation. It's right to be ambitious. Paul prays that they will take leaps and bounds. And yet the more that we aspire to isn't flashy, it's not impressive. It is this deep relationship with God where we depend on him and serve him in our lives and we are thankful. The final part of the passage, verses 15 to 23. Paul points the Colossians to Jesus, the one in whom fullness is found. Paul points the Colossians to Jesus, the one in whom fullness is found. Essentially, we'll plumb this through as we work through the letter, but essentially the new teachers in Colossae were offering the Christians more than Jesus. They're saying, it's okay, it's fine to start with Jesus and start with the gospel that you heard from Epaphras, but there is more. And if you want to find real fullness, then you need to move on. And what's Paul's response? It's to point them to Jesus. He says, look at Jesus. Are you crazy? You think you could add to Jesus? You think he has deficiencies that you could supplement? He is the high point in every conceivable way. There's nothing to add. There's nothing to be less than satisfied about. Look at Jesus. And you won't be tempted to look anywhere else. Look through those verses, please. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want insights into God, then Jesus is the place to look. The image of the invisible God who shows us his power, his character. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. There's no one more important than he is. He's the inheritor. The future is all bound up with Jesus. That's what that means. All things were created by him and for him. That's a staggering thing for Paul to say. All things were created by him and for him. That means everything in the universe relates to Jesus. Everything is his business. Everything was made by him and everything for him. He was before all things. There's no backstory before Jesus. There's nothing that is behind his involvement in the universe. And he upholds everything moment by moment. Everything in real time is related to Jesus as his will is worked out in the world. He is the head of the church and the firstborn from among the dead. He was the first raised, the Lord over the new creation that is coming. He is supreme in all things. And then, verse 19, all God's fullness dwells in him. There are no secrets outside of Jesus. There's nothing extra. So in all our spiritual ambitions, Paul is saying, all of our ambitions, rightly pursued, focus on Jesus. Making progress in the Christian life is about knowing him better, seeing more of what he really is like, who he is, He is the inexhaustible treasure mine into which, over the years of our lives, we must dig down and down 
and down. What does that mean practically? Well, just one example, and it's not a particularly good one, but when did you last sit down and just read through a gospel or a bit of a gospel and look at the life of Jesus and read his words? All of the Bible is about Jesus. That's why this is not a particularly good example. All the words of the Bible are the words of God, the words of Jesus. But there is something about the Gospels, his human life. When did we last just look at that and think about his character, the way he was with people, his bravery, his emotions, his humanity? That's the sort of thing Paul is inviting us to do. That is true spiritual ambition. He's saying that we can come to Jesus with limitless ambition and curiosity. We will never exhaust the richness of this amazing person. He is the supreme Lord. And also, reading on from verse 20, he's the sufficient rescuer. There's no more that we need to add to the rescue, the work that Jesus has done for us. Paul says, once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. It doesn't get any better than that. What Jesus has done for his people on the cross, there's nothing beyond that. There's no way to be more accepted by God, to be closer to God, than Jesus has made us through his death. Christ rules over all things. He reconciles all things. And Paul is saying, look at him. Look at him. And you won't be tempted to look anywhere else. Find your satisfaction in him and him alone. There are negative implications to what he's saying here in the context. We'll see that as we look through, through chapter 2. Paul specifically says things about Jesus to cut off some of what the false teachers in Colossae were saying. We'll need to think really um, carefully about what those connections are and how we see the different examples of false teaching in the church today and how they're silly because we need everything, sorry, everything we need is found in Jesus. But for this evening, let's stick with Paul's positive statement, the positive point that he's making in this little last section, Jesus is amazing. There's nothing beyond him or before him. There is no part of God that is not seen in him. He is the gold mine in which all spiritual treasure is to be found. The life of fullness is the life that digs down deeper and deeper into him. We have everything in Christ if we're Christians. Converted by the, uh, by the genuine gospel. We have everything in Christ. And fullness is about realising our riches in him as we walk with Jesus day by day and hear from him in the Bible as we talk to him 
as we think of him moment by moment and depend on him, as we fix our eyes on Jesus. There is no spiritual ambition that we can bring that is too big that will not be met in Christ as we seek to know him and serve him. As we finish, please could you turn over to chapter 3. It's the first four verses. It's a complicated little paragraph, but I think as the weeks go by, we'll see that in many ways this is the heart of what this letter is talking about practically. This is what it means to pursue fullness in Christ. This is the experience every morning, say, of the Christian. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears. If we can understand that phrase, when Christ, who is your life, then we will understand this letter and we will understand the full extent of God's purposes in our lives and in the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would fire us with a spiritual ambition to know you more, to serve you more, to know the joy of being a child of God, to understand the hope that is ours. Well, please forgive us for our sluggishness, for how easily distracted we are by the things that are happening around us. Pray that you would draw us on to seek after you more and more and more, that we would be hungry for a greater sight vision, experience of you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would draw us to Jesus. Please, more and more, would we be lost in him and captivated by him, that we would admire his beauty, his grandeur, his character, and that we would learn what it means that Christ is our life. We pray that more and more, with the Apostle, with integrity, we would be able to say that for ourselves, that our whole life is bound up with Christ, that he is our joy, our best friend. Well, please teach us as we look at this letter, for your name's sake and for our joy. Amen.